Hello and welcome to another episode of Room for Thought. My special guest today is a comic genius. Not only a comic genius, he's one of the finest financial writers in the country, writing for Money Week, and you also I think I'm right in saying a quite a distinguished economist. Dominic Frisbee, thank you. Well, thank you very much. I'm not a distinguished economist because I've never studied it. I'm completely self-taught. In other words, you've not been corrupted I've by the... I've not been corrupted or indoctrinated, indoctrinated or, or brainwashed. by the groupthink prevalent within social science departments at universities. No, but my son is. I'm trying to in get my son indoctrinated at the moment. He's just done his, just going to Bristol to read economics. So. Before we start, yeah. I'm going to show a little clip of what I think is one of the funniest videos I've seen. It's you, and every, every time I look at the Brexit shenanigans going on on our television, every time I hold my head in despair at the folly of the House of Commons, a little tune comes to mind, <laughs> and it's you singing, it's a family show, so I'm not going to say the full words, 17 million FOs. Campaigning had gone on for many a month With debate and discussion on many a front They'd argued, they fought, they had smeared and pulled stunts There was David Cameron, Theresa May, George Osborne, Tony Blair, John Major, the BBC The British told them to The British told them to And there's that wonderful moment when you're, 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 you're prancing around Westminster in a top hat Why did you do it? Um, well... Uh, you know, I'm a comedian and I'm, I write songs and that's how what I've always done. And how and many we, people have seen it now? Millions? Oh, well, I think it's like 1.5 million on Facebook and it's about 600,000 on YouTube. So over 2 million. It, I think it, you speak for the country there. You speak for the nation. Listen, I can't hear the word Andrew Adonis without thinking. <laughs> Nobody can. I must have made that poor man's life a misery. But uh, Shame. The, um, like, the amount of people, because it came in sort of March last year when it was pretty obvious that we weren't going to leave and morale was pretty low amongst those who voted to leave and a lot of people said how it sort of cheered them up at a time when morale was really low so that's kind of what I'm most happy about and apparently I, all the ERG were all playing it in the House of Commons to I, cheer I themselves was, up. I was, I was <laughs> lying in bed one evening holding my mobile phone in front of me chuckling and my wife said what on earth are you doing? <laughs> and I, was, I was laughing to you cavorting around Westminster. Yeah, just over, just over there. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, on, a, on, a, on a more serious note, you've, you've also published um, a book, yeah. um, Daylight Robbery, um, yeah. How Tax Shaped Our Past Will Change Our Future. Yeah. And so, it comes out fairly soon. Yeah. It comes out about now. now. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's about tax and yeah. how tax has actually, tax isn't a boring thing for accountants. It's actually a key dynamic explaining historic events. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, my original theory in the sort of noughties when we first met is that if we were going to save the world, we needed to fix our system of money. And it all boiled down to money and we needed a pure and incorruptible system of money. And thankfully, both nature and now tech have both given us those systems in the form of gold and Bitcoin. It's happening. So, so it's slowly happening. And then my next big theory was right tax is the next thing that we need to change. And so I did this Edinburgh show, a comedy show in 2016 called Let's Talk About Tax. And uh, as I was writing that show, I sort of started to look back through history and I read quite a bit. And then I suddenly realized that tax is as old as civilization itself. The first taxes were in ancient Mesopotamia and probably in the sort of nomadic societies that predated civilization. There was even then this probably a sense of duty to the greater collective. And, you know, for example, the very first forms of writing that we have, 
our tax records. And Presumably you've got, a, you've got a settled society, a hierarchy, you've got people at the top. Yeah. First thing they learn to do is how do you extort from the toiling masses? Well, that's one way of looking at it, and I agree. But then there's also this idea that this, this sense of duty to the greater collective. And in ancient Mesopotamia, it was only 10%. You know, it was the tithe. The tithe. And so I think if we went back to the tithe now, most of us would take that. The tithe barn. <laughs> you had yeah. to hand over to the church yeah. a tenth of your income. Absolutely. And do and you know why, why it was probably a tithe? It's because we have ten fingers on our hands and it was an easy number to calculate. Oh, really? That's, that's the one explanation for it. Okay. And, um, but then anyway, so I started to read through and then it, I suddenly realised that there is some kind of tax story. There's never been a civilization without taxation of some kind. Um, and so, you know, even in, you know, the most, what's the word, enlightened societies in history, ancient Greece, for example, mm -hmm. uh, taxes were voluntary, but they still existed. And they had slaves then, but, but even taxes so. Taxes were voluntary? In ancient Greece, yeah, in early ancient Greece, before okay. about Pericles, they had a thing called the liturgy. And it was considered the responsibility of the well-to-do to fund, you know, essential building works, but essential it, entertainment. In return for that, did you get... A claim, civic, civic. Um, yeah, a claim, and status. eventually, well, eventually, liturgists were granted heroic status. Okay. So initially, it was only warriors that could be heroes, but eventually, liturgists became heroes, and they would, for example, buy ships, and the ships would police Athens's shipping lanes, which were kind of essential. But it was voluntary, and the person paying the beautiful thing is the person paying the liturgy was responsible for carrying out the works. So you didn't have hand your money over to somebody else to spend it for you. You spent it yourself. So you would have so, got effect, efficient use of public resources. Absolutely. And it was in your interests to make sure it was done as well as possible for the least possible price, not only because of the economics of the thing in question, but also because you know, if you were putting on these games or you were building this bridge or this public building or building this ship, you wanted it to be the best possible ship because it was made you look. But if we all accept that tax is an integral part of civilization, have there not also been occasions when excessive tax have basically corrupted a society? Look at, I mean, there are numerous occasions where a sort of parasitic elite has, has ruled. Oh my ruin. goodness. I think tax is a sort of, it's almost like a measure of freedom. And there's a definite correlation between the societies that are the most inventive, the most innovative, the most free, and they tend to be the, the societies that were taxed the least. So, for example, the early Roman Republic um, is the early Islam. All these societies had very low Britain in the 19th century, the late 19th century, the, the, uh, America in the 19th century, all societies with very low levels of taxation. And then you tend to find that over time taxes go up. And people get less free, and this your parasitic elite creep. You, you, you see this certainly in the Islamic in world. Every society there's ever been. Early Islamic world, extraordinary capacity for wealth creation. Gradually, tax rates go up yeah. until you get to a situation where actually, you know, under under the Ottomans, entire provinces are, are depopulated because of the completely. Taxes. And in in people struggle to understand how Islam. There was like thirty or forty years from Muhammad that thirty or forty year, forty year period. Um, where, and Muhammad and the first three caliphs, where Islam just had this extraordinary expansion and nobody can understand why. It's also, it's replacing high tax empires yeah. that have That's, brought destruction well, to was, Egypt it, and the Middle It was East. exactly that. They would, they would go into Rome, Byzantium um, and, and, and uh, other areas of Persia. Uh, the Sasanian Empire was another one, heavily taxed uh, regimes. And if you, they would conquer them, the people were, were actually grateful to be conquered. But if you converted to Islam, you were then granted tax exemption. And so this proved a very effective uh, you know, proselytizing tool.
And so if you converted to Islam, you wouldn't have to pay the poll tax, or you would have to pay the poll tax and not convert to Islam, or if you didn't pay the poll tax, you would be killed. But presumably, being, so being, that being, was the option: death, presumably, death taxes presumably, or Islam, and everyone chose Islam. Under, under early Islam, actually, if you were a merchant, you, you got a pretty good deal. You, yeah, you you had. I mean, there's some evidence that the Venetians copied the contractual system that made Venice a thriving centre of capitalism by basically pilfering the idea from. Yeah, um, the third caliph, whose name escapes me for the moment, I'd have to look it up, but he was actually a great hero of Laffer, uh, you know, the economist yeah, Arthur yeah. Laffer, and uh, um, not Al-Khadun, Al-Khadun was a gang, anyway, it, and, but he um, instructed his um, generals not to tax people, and if, you know, for example, the weather had been bad that year, or there'd been flooding, or for whatever reason, crop yields were low, mm -hmm. he instructed them to tax them less, because it was important that the, the, the country was as prosperous as possible, and eventually that revenue would find its way into the public coffers. Mm -hmm. So he actually, and, and he was one of sort of Laffer's idols. Okay, extraordinary, extraordinary. Now, can I, can I just go back to what we were talking about initially, which is that this idea that tax has, there is not a single great event in history that doesn't have some kind of tax story at the heart of that event. And often it's an untold um, event. So I'm going to challenge you now, Douglas, to, and in this regard, taxes have in, in fact shaped the entire course of history. So I want you to shout out tax ev great events from history, and I will endeavour to tell you the, the tax stories behind it. Briefly, those. French Revolution. Well, the French Revolution, every revolution and revolt is a rising up against some kind of in, injustice caused by um, excess taxation. The English Civil War, hadn't it? Uh, absolutely, the English Civil War, and, and that probably went, ended in, only really ended in the Glorious Revolution. But you can, the American Revolution, most obviously, there was a, the Philippine Revolution, the cry of Pugad Lawin was for uh, Filipinos to tear up their tax certificates. I like but the that. French Relu yeah. Revolution, of course, was France was incredibly burdened with that with taxation. And um, when Napoleon rode through the streets of um, of uh, uh, of Paris, um, he's the, they, the French cried, "No more taxes! Down with taxes! Down with the rich! Long live the emperor!" What about what about the the um the Reformation or the Renaissance? Is there a tax change going on that explains that or shapes that? Well, um, that's not one great event. But if you look at the countries that prospered best during the Renaissance, um, you'd first, well, Italy at first, but gradually that, Italy was already becoming pretty corrupt at that time and that spread, that kind of freed, freedom was spreading into northern, Flanders. northern Flanders and so on, especially Flanders, but also, you know, with the, with the liberalisation of, of religion, um, with the printing press and so on and, and the rise of, of, of Protestantism. But in England, um, you know, Henry VII was a great tax reformer. And he was the first king in for centuries. In, in his entire reign, he only got involved in one overseas conflict, which at the and instead he over, pursued overseas trade deals and marriages. And he brought huge revenue to the king and effectively put the barons out of business. I've got a question looking to the future. In in the past, pre-industrial revolution, you wanted to raise wealth, you basically taxed agriculture. Yeah. Industrial revolution comes along, you create wealth by making things, so you tax by taxing factories. Now, a factory's not that mobile. You tax it too much, it, it could move, but it, it's hard to. Now the great creator of wealth is, is IP, intellectual property. And if you overtax IP, it, it, it moves as quickly as an email. I mean, many of the disputes we have about 
whether or not Starbucks and these big corporate entities should be paying tax. It's basically a debate over in which jurisdiction the IP is being exploited. Doesn't this fundamentally change the nature of the tax base? It's a huge problem that governments have. Why is it a and problem? It, because taxes are going to be harder to collect. Oh dear. Taxing a physical, you know, you know, for example, how do you tax 3D printing? When somebody sends the, the item straight to your printer at home and you print it at home or wherever the 3D printer. If you're the European Commission, you come up with all sorts of mad harebrained yeah. schemes. But the, the fact that, you know, the biggest wealth, the, the big change in the economy occurred in the late 90s. And that was the time at which investment in digital assets and the value of digital assets suddenly became greater than mm -hmm. the value of physical assets. Mm -hmm. So companies like Google and Facebook and, you know, Netflix and TripAdvisor and all these companies. I remember someone saying to me that Google was now worth more than British Airways. And this exactly. Was, this was seen as a surprise. But now if you compare, to... you know, the great Mercedes-Benz or BMW, they've got market caps in tens of billions. And, you know, Amazon and Apple have got market caps in trillions. The, the, the value between the easily taxable physical world mm -hmm. and the globalized digital world. And it, it's, it's going to be a huge headache because the more you tax the physical world, yeah. the more investment is going to go into the but digital as, world. As, as, do, you, as, do you see? So it's actually going to accelerate. But as the event. French monarch once said, or rather his finance minister, Colbert, said, um, the art of taxing is extracting the most feathers from the goose with the minimum amount of hissing. Absolutely. The tax base is now not a base at all. It, it, it's fluid. The geese can fly. The base is a river. The next big problem is not just taxing the intangible economy, but the biggest source of tax revenue for governments worldwide is income tax. 50% of government revenue is income tax. And that's because the traditional relationship between employer and employee is easily taxable. But the next dynamic we have is that more and more people are turning freelance. The rise of the gig You can't economy. tax the payroll. It's much harder. Yeah. And, but not only that, the next stage from that is more and more people are working in the digital economy, the, where, where there is no border, uh, you know, on the internet. More and more digital nomads, and they're going from high tax regimes so to low tax regimes. You're going to have to tax consumption, and you're going to have to tax assets, land. I think so. I think that's but that's the, a good thing. I, I agree. But the one of the other great lessons of history is that it is impossible for a government to implement a new tax uh, in times of peace. They get voted out. The only time that new taxes come in are at times of war yep. or some kind of national emergency. And so if they are like, I think you and I are both in favor of land value tax, for example. But, you know, we saw how the, um, the mansion tax, which is a sort of bastardized form of land value tax, ended for the Labour Party. It is going to be very difficult to introduce a land value tax mm -hmm. unless there is some kind of emergency. Um, you know, income tax, whether it was during the Napoleonic Wars, World War II, World War I, World War II, we only got these high levels of taxes because of the wars enabled that. I suspect so we need a national emergency. Without it, governments are going to struggle to bring in new taxes, well, which is a good thing. I, I suspect what's going to happen is governments will sort of bumble along with their broken tax system. They'll do what they do in any country where the tax revenue doesn't generate sufficient to satisfy current government demand for money. Yeah, they'll they make will, up the will, difference with quantitative easing and debt and all yeah, the rest of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, they'll borrow it. And they'll debt is, the currency. I, I call um, debasement of currency, I call it, that's um, you know, uh, taxation uh, without legislation, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as we know, Milton Friedman quote, and debt is just a tax on the future. Yeah. Um, okay, so what in your utopia, um, say, say we, we, we avoid a national calamity, um, Comrade Corbyn doesn't quite make it as Prime Minister, the, the um, country um, has a reformist government. 
you are called in by Sanjay Javid to design the new tax system, what would it look like? The first thing I would do is I would appoint a minister to whom HR, HMRC has to report. Now at the moment that is the De Deputy Secretary of the Treasury, but it's actually a bit of a vague area. And the clue here is in HM, Her Majesty's um, Revenue and Customs. It, technically, and this goes all the way back to the Civil War and it's a total anomaly, taxes are the property of the Crown, though only Parliament may say how they are spent. And for too long, HMRC has gone unaccountable to anyone. It's the ultimate unaccountable crime. Yeah. And for that reason, it's hopelessly bloated, inefficient. It's, it, it commits... It's also quite arbitrary because I remember constituents coming to me who've been treated appallingly yeah. by HMRC and there's nothing that the Minister no of Parliament can do. Yeah. And even now, this, there's, you know, so the first thing I would do is appoint a government minister to whom it reports. Yeah. And I would find some kind of constitutional reform that eradicates that yeah. anomaly. Finish off the Civil War. I like Finish that. Finish off the Civil War. And um, the next thing I would do is you've got to, I mean, we have the longest tax code in the world. It's, our tax code is equivalent to 14 times the length of the Bible. Um, it is more words than most people read in their lifetime. And the fact is, it's not just that it's more words, it's that most of those words are unreadable. But when you get to something that that's, that, that's that long, it becomes entirely arbitrary. It, absolutely. Like the Bible, there'll be uh, all sorts of contradictory bits of information. Sure, and the, more, the bigger it is, the more loopholes there yeah. are. And the loopholes get exploited, so and that's what makes it. lawyers love it. But that's what makes people so angry because it's one rule for, for the guy who's got the resources yeah. to navigate the loopholes, and it's another rule for everyone else. And so immediately you have it creates injustice. So we've got, and the, the, the biggest offender, you know, um, the last chancellor to make it his, his job to slash taxes was Lawson, who tax, slashed a tax with every budget. The tax code then tripled in length under Gordon Brown. George Osborne came to power promising to simplify it. He I set remember up, that well. He, said, he even talked about flatter taxes. Flatter taxes in the Office of Tax Simplification. It doubled again in length under his tenure. Doubled. He was only there, what, six, eight years, but something? And he was so, a disaster, that man. Uh, terrible. And, but the reason that the code is so long it's not so much the tax laws themselves, it's all the subsidies and the exemptions yeah. and all these little favours that get yeah, yeah. given to certain businesses. So it has to have a committed reformer who is going to go, we are slashing this tax, we are yeah. slashing this tax. And simplify, it's easy to say simplification, it's very hard to do. So the book is, the book is out, I'm sure it's going to do incredibly well. But I think, I think so. It's, it, I, I was planning it for it to take me six months. And it took me three years to write. And I've taken great care to make it as readable as possible. So I've, I've, I've told everything through stories. I, rather than like, we need to do this, we need to do that. Just you, try to tell a million different stories from history. You sent me a draft and asked me to write some blurb to put you on did. the back cover. And I see it's not there. Well, you have to take this up with the publisher, Douglas. <laughs> and uh, it's something I'm not happy about because I want you... Because you, you've been a you, great supporter of my books. You put books, Steve and Baker there. You put... Mark, Mark Littlewood, fair enough. Liz Truss, fair enough. But I think you've got to add me there. It I'm should be there. Out Liz Truss. You, you right. cross her out and put Douglas Carswell. Brilliant. But and and but you you're in good company because Matt Ridley gave me a very nice review. He hasn't made the cover. Roger Bootle gave me a they very nice Matt review. Ridley. They cut Matt Ridley. They cut and Roger they put Bootle. Marion in the Marion yeah, in the, and they in, cut in Douglas the Carswell. So uh, goodness knows there is no justice in this. There world. is no justice. <laughs> <laughs> now listen. One of the reasons why I think you are particularly effective is because many people who advocate free market ideas um, 
tend to be, well, just a little bit academic and out of touch. You, on the other hand, stand up in front of rooms full of people at the Edinburgh Fringe and make them laugh. I do my best. Do you, do you use comedy as a way of attack, uh, uh, attacking the consensus and, and, and mainstreaming some of these ideas? It's funny, I didn't for a long time. And uh, so for many years I was just a sort of jobbing comedian. Still am a jobbing comedian, and I'd sort of write about gold, and I'd write my book about Bitcoin, and I wrote my life after the state, and I'd be a tremendous campaigner through my columns for, you know, libertarianism and free markets and anarchy and all the rest of it. And But I sort of didn't do it in my comedy, because I'll give you an example. Before the Brexit vote, if I was doing a financial talk, and I'd say to the room, who voted leave, who voted remain, usually it would be 70-30, something like that, in favour of leave, amongst the sort of financial crowds that I spoke to. But did the same thing in a comedy. As a 30, you wouldn't feel comfortable putting your hands up because it's... No, in favour of leave. Okay. In favour of leave. Okay. And that, no, but they, it's a financial talk, so it's pretty calm, everyone's pretty measured. You go into a comedy club, it was 90, 95% remain, and those who voted leave often would put their hands up for remain even if they voted leave. It's a very kind of comedy... Live comedy is very kind of old-school left-wing, if you like, very much in that sort of Blairite. Consciously, they're all avant-garde, but in fact... Well, they think they are, but it's... Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, and ultimately, your aim as a comedian is not to have a row, a political row, with the audience. You want people to feel good. Yeah, and particularly also, as I was the compo, I was normally the host. So I I didn't do stuff that was too challenging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this comedy night started in Bethnal Green last year called Comedy Unleashed. Comedy Unleashed. And somebody, I don't quite know how it happened, but the guy who organised it, the guy at the backyard said, oh, that Dominic Frisbee's into free speech, get him to compare it. And I, so I went along and compared the first one and I just started talking stuff and I just realised the whole audience, it was people like you, Guido Fawkes, Toby Young, James Dellingport, all these kind of people, you know, who are kind of part of our alliance, if you like, in the audience. And I suddenly found here was my audience. And so that's when I wrote the Brexit song. And I literally wrote it one day. And uh, I did it the next day in Comedy Unleashed. And people came up to me and said, that's brilliant. And normally you try material out 10, 20 times. And um, my friend Alex, who's actually sitting over there, came up to me. Hello, Alex. <laughs> Hello, Alex. He and, is the And producer. he said, do you want to um, uh, make a f- film of this? And I said, so this was, I wrote it on the Monday with my ukulele teacher. I did it on the Your Tuesday. It was ridiculous. I discovered my <laughs> ukulele teacher. He comes to my house and we have ukulele lessons. And I just would sort of be moaning about stuff. And I just sort of, you just saw little flickers of body language. You haven't uh, brought your ukulele with you now? No, I, I have actually. I've got it over could, there. Could, I'll could, do you a song at the end. At the end, could we have a, sure. a strong? I'll do you a song. Um, so anyway, and over the course of having lessons with this ukulele teacher, I discovered that he is in fact a militant libertarian, even more militant than I am. Uh-huh. And so I started writing these songs with him and he was like, he would write the music and I would write the words. And it was just, a, again, this happy accident. And he keeps his politics to himself because he wants to get booked again for the lessons. But it was just one of these things. You just sort of say things and you just sort of saw flickers of agreement. (laughs) Anyway, so we wrote this song on the Monday. We did it on the Tuesday in Comedy Unleashed. And then Alex was like, oh, well, I'm filming till about two. Let's try three o'clock. Okay, I can meet you at three. So we went and we met, I met him by the Churchill statue in Westminster uh, in the square there. And we, we went to film it. And we were looking for a church to do the, the choir bit at the beginning. So we were like an hour and a half trying to find a church. And then we couldn't find one. In the end, we were just like, do it. This ridiculous story happening. We found one church. We knocked on the door and it had a beautiful organ. And I said to the um, 
rector of the church, you know, could we just film one shot of this thing in front of your beautiful organ, um, meaning the, the one he plays? And <clears throat> he was very, um, he, he kind of went, you're, you're making a song, are you? And we said, yes. He said, what's it about? And I thought, it's a, it's a man of the church, so I'm going to be totally honest about this. I said, it's about Brexit. Went, Which side are you on? Like that. Which side are you on? And uh, I said, well, that's not really what the song's about, but I actually voted to leave. And he took the door, a man of God, and he slammed the door in our face. Really? He's, he'd said, um, I'm, I don't want your sort in here, and slammed the door in our face. A vicar? A vicar. A C of E vicar? A C of E vicar in the church just around the corner there, um, two blocks up. So wow. anyway, we were given this blow, and, and my friend Alex, so in the end, we went and filmed it in an alcove under Westminster School. This is the first part. And so we were singing this bit, and the English said, F off. And this woman leant out of the window and said, you do know we can hear you up there. And we said, we said yes. The headmaster's just upstairs. And we said, yes. Sing it more quietly. <laughs> <laughs> so we had this kind of ally in the thing. Anyway, but we filmed this video round Parliament Square. This is Westminster School. Westminster, John this is Westminster John, School. John Locksall School. Yeah, exactly. They would understand. They they would, understand. I think she got it. She was on board, unlike the vicar. And then we, we did the whole thing in about two hours, and we got it up on YouTube the very next day. So the whole thing from composition to final video was only about three or four days. And um, it was up, and it just it came you know, in March when everyone was feeling really low, and it was a real bolster to people, and it was just a viral hit. But anyway, that gave me the confidence to realise there was an appetite for yeah. my songs. And so me and the militant ukulele teacher have been writing more and more songs ever since. If, if the BBC was remotely competent, what they would do is they would commission a whole spectrum of, of, of sure. comedy rather than the same old sort of, you know, nonsense. It's I mean, such a closed shot. I, I read today that it's it's 50 years almost to the day since the first Monty Python. And, you know, it was known as alternative comedy because rather than, you know, Hancock's half hour, people were doing some slightly quirky things. I, I wonder... Isn't comedy as commissioned by the BBC in need of a new alternative comedy? It needs a new system. It, 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 it's badly in need of... Because what it thinks is alternative comedy is not alternative. And there's so much frustration, you know, that there's just not enough representation for... And they commission people, people who, on the basis of the content of their chromosomes um, oh, rather than well, whether it's, they're funny. It's, there's, there's, well, they do that. Um, it's, it's token-tastic. But there's so many other problems. It's like who your agent is is such a big factor. There's so many, you know, so most comedians it's a, it's a are blokes. Oh, it's a terrible cartel. It's and a it's who, cartel. You, who you hang out with at the Edinburgh Fringe. That yeah, and even the Edinburgh Fringe, like the best venues tend to be controlled by the, by the best agents. So would, if you can't get in the best venues... If, it's, if you were talking to someone in the Public Accounts Committee in the House of Commons... Would it be sensible for them to actually have a formal investigation of the commissioning process? I mean, do you think it's it's actually so sort of nepotistic and, and oh, closed that shop? That would be wonderful. That yeah. would be so funny. Yeah. But I mean, it's just the other thing is is commissioners are terrified of taking risks because if they commission something, comedy is about risks by definition. Yeah, but if they take something that they they're responsible ultimately, so they will always take the conservative choice wherever possible, and they'll go, well, I got that comic and he'd been in this, and he was in this and he's got a track record. They'll never commission the guy who's never done anything on the BBC before. They just won't. And, you know, there is... People who don't have the right views are demonised. Um, and, and it happens in comedy. And there's a few people have got out, quite outspoken about comedy and they've said, well, I don't like this and that. And they have been completely ostracised by the circuit. Like 
So I'll give you an example. We're working on this song at the moment called Two Black Eyes, which is a, a reversion of a 19th century music hall classic. And in the 19th century music hall classic, what happens is that there's a chap and he's walking along the street and he meets his friend who's a Whig and he starts espousing his Tory values to mm -hmm. his friend who's the Whig and ends up with two black eyes. So the next day he thinks, oh, I better not espouse Tory values. And he meets his other friend who's a Tory and he espouses Whig values to him and, is, and ends up with two black eyes. And the moral of the story is don't talk about politics or you'll end up with two black eyes. So we've done a version of this song where a guy comes along and he meets his Remainer friend and he starts telling, espousing Leave and ends up with two black eyes. So the next guy he, meets, he says, I better do, talk about Remain. And he meets his Leave friend and he starts espousing um, uh, Remain to his Leave yeah. friend and ends up with two black eyes. And the moral of the story is... Don't talk about Brexit or you'll end up with two black eyes. Lovely little musical song. and We've done a great little modern version of it. I've tried to get some of my... And these are great friends who I've had bonding experiences on the comedy circuit with back in the day doing impossible gigs in, you know, army bases in Aldershot and stuff like this. These kind of gigs just bond you. And guys who I regard as really close friends, but, you know, they've got Brexit derangement syndrome in, in yeah. favour of Remain. And they're like, I regard you as a mate but I never want to work on any of your projects ever. And you're, and you're like, listen to the song. The song is about this very thing that you're describing. And they won't do it. So there's this sort of, but they're also thinking, well, I don't want to be seen in videos with that guy because he's got this sort of libertarian right-wing lurgy. I don't even see myself as right-wing because right-wingers to me is somebody who believes in more government and I'm a big favour of less government. Yeah, I less like you, I, I'm not a conservative at all. I want change. I yeah. like change. Um, but anyway, but so there's this, but there's this thing where nobody wants to be tarnished yeah. with the brush of the people, with the tarred, with the brush of the people who have the wrong yeah, opinions. Yeah. And that is rife through comedy. Yeah, it's, it's I mean... It's slowly changing. I, do you know it's how it's going to change? YouTube. Netflix. Don't you think uh, Netflix... Yes and no. Has Netflix commissioned comedy yet? It's commissioning loads of comedy, but unfortunately it's going to the same old... It's going to the really? same old agents and the same old thing. Because again, it's, it's the, beauty of, the beauty of the Edinburgh Fringe in its original form. You, and, and, and again, YouTube is that anyone can put on a show and anyone can do it. When stuff gets commissioned, and this is like, you may not know this story, but the Edinburgh Fringe and the Edinburgh Festival were two separate entities. Mm -hmm. And the Edinburgh Festival was originally put on, and it put on the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, the it's Halle Orchestra. Yeah, full of poshos. And then the, these, and these, this, these Scottish socialist theatre groups came along and said, we'd like to do some shows at your inaugural festival. And the festival said, no, we don't want little socialist groups. And they came anyway and did their shows anyway. So they booked the upstairs of pubs. And yeah, that's exactly. And over the course of 20, 30 years, eventually the Fringe overtook the festival and became bigger and bigger. And the Fringe is like YouTube and the festival is like the BBC and now YouTube is overtaking the BBC and you know no commissioner would ever commission you know cat videos or all the bizarre things that are hugely popular on YouTube and yet there's an appetite for them and people get millions of hits and build up huge followings showing themselves playing video games I mean who would have ever thought that but so and I'm afraid the problem with Netflix is it's still got that thing that stuff has to be commissioned. Technically, I could make a film and it could go on the Netflix um, uh, platform and I would get so much every time it's played on Netflix. But, but the amount you get is so minimal. What you really want to do is get the commission in the first place because that gives you a much bigger budget to make stuff. Yeah. And I've, so once you have commissioning, you have lack of risk taking. Doesn't, we've been talking about comedy, but isn't it a broader problem that you've got a sort of cultural elite in the West that is, has got a lot in common with other elites in, you know, 
the, the British elite have got a lot in common with the French elite and the American sure. elite. They did the same um, banal, tedious, valueless MBAs at the same vacuous colleges and read the same vacuous opinions in the same vacuous newspapers like The Economist and the FT. But their people don't buy into any of their assumptions. Yeah. And, and this is becoming obvious now. It is. But you also get this weird thing where you'll have like Mervyn King, Bank of, Governor of the Bank of England for years. Brilliant book he wrote. Yeah. Oh, was it? I yeah, never read Alchemy. Oh, okay. I, I never read it. It's, it's fantastic. Okay, so he was a good governor, whatever. But then he left and said, the Bank of England needs to do this and suddenly called out for all these things that it needs yeah, to do. Absolutely. George Osborne did the same. And you're like, why didn't you do it I, when you had the job? Well, I listened and to so, John Humphreys, who's yeah, been a presenter um, for 30 years. Yeah. And he has the... No, I mean, I, I don't it like... It's exactly I, the example I, I, I was like, about to give. I don't like yeah. calling people hypocrites. But he kept on talking about how dreadful the groupthink in the BBC Today Room producer meetings were. Well, what the heck did you do yeah. about it? Exactly. This is exactly the point I was trying to make. And this is rife. And pe but John Humphreys is probably thinking, like a performer... I've got the gig on the Today Show. This is the best radio gig in the country. I don't want to rock the boat here. So my personal ambition to be the host of the Today Show or the Governor of the Bank of England or the Chancellor of the Exchequer has to take precedence over doing the right thing. Dominic, I have zero, zero time for that. I, I know. Have, I had a great gig called being a Tory MP yeah. in a safe seat. And you know, I thought, do you know what? I could, I could play it safe I and I could have this for 30 years. I know. But I was in politics to rock the boat. Sure. I wanted to leave the European Union. Yeah. But people Douglas, stayed, you did the right thing. But Those people, guys didn't. But but this is what we've got to change about the way the country is run. And you the way cannot, individuals think. Yeah. You cannot have a group of people who know that the group think is wrong, but who put their own self-interest ahead of doing the right thing. You, you've got to have, you know, you've got to have a, a way of getting rid of MPs, a way of, you know, ensuring that public officials, you know, if you work for the Bank of England and you have the sort of doubts about the monetary system that Mervyn King had, for goodness sake, say something about it. Sure, and do something about yeah. it. But they, and, and then they leave, so, and then they're writing a book or they want a career in the media, whatever it is. So it actually pays to be the contrary guy. But when, so that, that mentality mm. is rife throughout the whole country and it creates, there's this, this, we have, we don't just have economic protectionism and protectionism of certain industries by giving yeah. them subsidies or tax breaks. It happens culturally as well. Yeah. And there's, we're just, it's, we're just too protectionist a society. You know, even um, looking at the, the, the Tory party, um, I remember talking to Conservative MPs who individually all knew that Theresa May was useless. Yeah. Who individually all knew that as long as she remained in office, Brexit would be fumbled. And yet two out of three of them voted to keep her in when they had a motion of confidence. And he took another... So imagine if the Tory party had got rid of her straight after it was obvious that she was no good, i.e. about six months after she took the job on. You know, failure to actually act... Is all these people will say what is required to be said in order to further their careers. Even people like Dominic Grieve and Chukurumana, we must honour the referendum result. We're not at all costs. This is what people have voted. We must honour. You know, and what? That was, that was when the voters had a say. Yeah. The moment the voters had said what but, they wanted. But they were saying, and even, you know, Theresa May, Brexit means Brexit. And I was like, yeah, it means Brexit. And then... Brexit means dog's uh, breakfast what, when she's in You know, yeah. exactly. So all these people, they, 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 they say, and, uh, and I'm afraid that is the trait of a psychopath. To but, say, but I'm not saying all these people are psychopaths because I don't know enough about it. But that is a trait to I, to I say mean, what's required I, to get on I, if you don't actually think it. This is what puzzles me. I don't. I genuinely don't think that the British elite 
are they're not stupid they're, these are people who are very very good certainly in their in their teens they're very very good at passing exams and getting into yeah. top universities and, and blagging um essays and uh, and ppe courses at, at top universities they're not stupid i don't think they're malevolent either i i just think there's something essentially self-serving about the institutions they work in so you know, if you're a bright 20 something year old you join the foreign office you're not encouraged at any point to really think what is the national interest. You end up talking about, you know, spreading female education in Africa and tackling climate change. You never really reach a point in that institution where you say, hang on, I'm a British diplomat. We need a foreign policy that is in the national interest. What is that? You spend your entire time pursuing priorities that it suits the institution for you to pursue, never the countries. There was this I'll just tell you this stupid little story. I used to host this. In fact, I interviewed you on it about one of your books, this thing called The Virgin Podcast. And I had a friend who was very high up for Vir with a virgin. And this was sort of before the podcasting boom. And I was going to him, you have to start a virgin podcast. I'll set it up for you. I'll do it all up for you. And we'll make this big brand. And I'm telling you, podcasting is going to be huge. Virgin is a really good brand. I'll get really good guests. We'll talk about interesting stuff, yada, yada. And so they're like all on board. And I've managed to persuade the thing. And it took me so much, like, just gentle to persuade and to get yeah. it going. And then I, I did it, and it turned into quite a nice thing. And it was, it was a good little business, and we had a revenue stream and everything else. And, um, but because I'd put so much work into it, I was quite dependent on the, you know, the presenter's fee at the time. This is quite, quite a few years ago. And then it was, um, I don't know, women's, it was some kind of women's, Liberation Day or something. So they, I remember all the management said, yes, because it's a thing, we're going we're gonna to sack you as presenter. I'm going to get a woman in to present the next batch of programs. And, and aren't we good and aren't we virtuous? Look at us. And I was like, hang on a minute. I've got this whole thing started. You're now sacking me in order to make you look virtuous. That virtuous thing of look at us, we've got, we're having uh, women presenting the Virgin podcast. And presumably you made it look easy. Is it absolutely no cost to you because you're not losing the gig out of it. I'm the freelancer. And I remember I lost the gig and then I wrote a grumpy email and suddenly I was the bad guy. Do you know what I mean? And Tell so me what happened to the podcast? Oh, there was too many. Oh, it was ridiculous. I, they had all these climate change guys on. Because, uh, you know, Branson's like really into climate change, you know, big believer in it. And, and they he all came on and then you could literally see the halos and they were all like this, all these virtuous figures. Whenever we had one on, the, the, we'd lose the listening levels. I was going to say, because you, so boring. if you were in charge of a podcast, you yeah. kind of, you, you get that understanding of yeah. what's countercultural and what yeah. works. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyway, I, I, so let me just, let me finish the story. So we had all this, and I said, look, to get a balanced thing, let's get a guy who's got the other side of the argument. And I'll tell you what, and so I got James Dellingpole on, right? And so he was going to debunk the climate change argument. And then at the same time, it was just when that story uh, broke about Cameron smoking weed at university. Do you remember? This was probably four or five years ago. And, 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 and James Dellingpole had smoked weed with David Cameron at university. So I had the scoop on, you know, smoking weed with the prime minister. And so I thought, well, Richard Branson's really into the legalization of drugs, so it's, I'll balance the thing out with that. And so um, uh, we did the thing. It was a really good interview. This is before Dellingpole's own, own podcast, but I think this gave him the idea to do his own podcast. Anyway, and the listeners went right up, and it was a really successful show. Then some guy in The Guardian, some climate change activist, then went, what is the... Um, and he got his thing in The Guardian. What is Richard Branson doing giving a climate change denier a platform? 
created a huge storm about it and they axed the whole show. So that guy doing the classic thing of the left is attack the guy's income. They just, he, he attacked the show and all the guys, the same guys who'd got the virtue points for sacking me and giving a job to somebody else um, uh, at no cost themselves, wouldn't, didn't defend me for having Dellingpon on, the, and they just they just can the whole show. But it's the corporate cowards that are completely corporate I mean, cowards. Idiots writing things in the Guardian is you know as long as. But there they is, are the commissioners. They were the guys who commissioned it, and they did not have any bollocks. And that same culture of commissioning goes all the way through the BBC and Channel Four and Netflix and everywhere else. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, and not you know there are there are good commissioners and bad commissioners, I mean, but there is that but, same problem of defending your own career. Yeah. Yeah. is that mentality is, is, is a problem throughout the commissioning process. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to learn. Um, I'm, I'm fairly new to what we're doing here. The Room for Thought is yeah. quite a new, new, new thing and other people are doing it, but I, I'm starting to learn. And I think the biggest barrier to entry is the fact that not everyone can ask the quirky questions or get the quirky discussion going. You know, if, if you're basically replicating what you'll find on Radio 4, yeah. soft, cliche-ridden... Um, group think adult guardian Easter conversations. Yeah, whatever. Who cares? And you, you can't if you if you try and replicate that. Well, the first thing we're doing that's breaking that rule, and you're not the first to do this, is we are talking in greater depth for a longer period of time. And this is one of the great discoveries of podcasts and long form interview shows. People are quite happy to sit and watch interesting, clever people talk intelligently about a subject. Well, there's it doesn't only one have to be for here. three minutes. Well, there are two, but it doesn't have to be for three minutes. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? It can and, be. And it's I, I've discovered this. If I have a long form show, by the end of that, over fifty percent of people will still be listening. Yeah. If I have a short form one, five minutes, the drop off rate is far faster. And I think it's a convenience thing. People will have this in the background. They they don't want to be condescended to. Yeah, and they can watch it in their own time. Yeah. Radio four or whatever it is, they've got that they've got the slot between eight and nine, they've got to get this, yeah. this, and this in the slot, and it just puts this pressure. But it's also quite condescending. I mean, if we were to have a conversation on Radio Four about tax and monetary policy, the producer would be tearing their hair out, saying that, you know, you're saying things that the listener doesn't know about. Whereas actually, on the contrary, I would say that the whole point of the show is to talk about things people don't know about. Yeah, and they wouldn't, if they were having a conversation, like I basically believe in lower, simpler, fewer taxes, Mm. but they're bound to have some guy, you know, who believes in more taxes on the show. And then it just becomes, well, and it it loses all its intelligence. Um, What else do we want to talk about? Um, Let's not talk about Brexit. It's a bit boring. Okay, I'm kind of... I, let me ask you a question, Douglas, and this is something I've been thinking about. Oh, good. You're interviewing me. Well, it, we, it's something we can discuss. Um, often, I, I've, I've, I've often looked at ideas inside my... If I've, I have a thought. I've, I, I used to think I was brilliant at spotting trends before they happened. But now I think what it is, is, you know, to use a simple thing... I see a pair of trousers that's really nice and I just think, oh, that's a nice pair of trousers and a million other people are seeing the same pair of trousers and they're thinking, oh, that's a nice pair of trousers and so gradually more and more people wear that pair of trousers and so you've got the trend. And one of the things like I've been feeling in the last couple of months is I've kind of lost, having been really, like if you go all the way back to 2001, I wrote a sketch for Radio 4. I had a weekly show, uh, on a weekly slot on Loose Ends um, and I had to do a party political broadcast by each of the political parties in the lead up to the 2001 general election. And that was the, the general election that had the lowest turnout since the First World War. That was between William Hague and 
And Tony Blair. Tony Blair. Well, exactly. Some choice. But, and I think it was 57% turnout or something terrible. And it was yeah. called the quiet majority or something. The, the quiet landslide. I, I stood against Tony Blair in that election. I, I know you did. And in um, wherever it was. Sedgefield. North, Sedgefield. And after it, I had to write, I wrote, they said, write a sp- victory speech. So I wrote this sketch, the victory speech by the apathy party. Because people had just lost all interest. And we had 9-11 that year, which in many ways was almost like peak Western complacency. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And politics ever, is all about cycle paths. Yeah, and ever yeah, and ever since then, whether it's going to war in Iraq illegally, or all the money printed, the housing boom in America, and the bust, and then the bailing out of the banks, the rise of digital media, the greater transparency digital technology has brought to politics, the greater ability people have to participate in politics, all these things, and then finally the referendum in twenty sixteen, undermining the managerialist. Sure, but it's caused this huge bull market in politics mm-hmm. and suddenly the people are engaged in politics now in a way that just was not recognizable you know 20 yep. years ago so my question to you is have we i'm starting to feel fatigued now i'm wondering if if what i'm feeling and a lot of other people are feeling and have we hit peak politics no why not because all the heat and angst that's being generated is not just heat and angst for the sake of heat and angst it's, it's leading somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's uh, an overthrow of a complacent, arrogant, and stupid political and cultural elite. What we're talking about in comedy, um, the people who preside over the commissioning of comedy in the BBC are a smug, out-of-touch clique. Well, the people who preside over the formation of public policy are inept, incompetent, and useless. Um, they're bad at their job. They're bad at commissioning policy. We never see the consequences of this because rather like the BBC has got a two billion pound budget behind them. The British state has idiots making public policy that's yeah. got the entire resource of the state. We, we, we're beginning to grasp just how utterly appalling those responsible for public administration in this country truly are. And it's leading to this restlessness of which Brexit is just a part. Yeah. And I mean, that's a, the great thing about Brexit is it has exposed so much the hollowness of, and, and the hollow complacency yeah. and the arrogance and all this i mean i i, I mean, did the, like the to say, loss of trust in but, parliament when i stood down um, voluntarily from politics in 2017 i made a decision that i wasn't really going to say unkind things about sitting mp's because i didn't <laughs> want to sound like a, a yeah. but i look at the spivs in parliament and boy it makes me angry um, there are a few exceptionally good people on either side of the house but as a collective I, I think they're a vile body and they need to be replaced. And, and I think I'm not the only person who, who, who realises this. You know, the, the Muppets who've been running central banks for 20, 30 years have taken us from a situation where they crashed the economy, crashed the banking system, and have then doubled down on their mistake with Mickey Mouse money. And it looks like they're starting to double down again. Yeah, but they... They run a system of porous borders so that we have allowed ourselves, I would argue, to be colonised by large numbers of people who don't share our cultural values. There's been no serious attempt at integration and assimilation. All previous attempts at creating... Well, they, nobody will challenge that because if you do that, you are racist. But in and the, so that's why... And the, all these guys are just looking after their own careers. But in the United States, I would argue, the United States was incredibly successful at taking people from Eastern Europe, from Southern Europe, from the, the poorest huddled masses and creating Americans. And I would argue America's still pretty good at doing this. But you know, if you, if, you look at, if you look at what Europe has done, 
it, it has created in parts of France large communities that have very little sense of belonging to the French state. Uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary difference. Um, Canada, I would say, has put a lot of effort into creating a sense of cohesive Canadianness. Maybe this is perhaps because the French part of Canada and the English-speaking part of Canada always required a sort of conscious attempt at, at, mm -hmm. at, at, at fusing. But, you know... The so where... So do you think... We, we share this theory that, you know, technology is going to change politics yeah. or already is changing yeah. politics. But I, and I, I, we're going into an age of more, of more referenda, more direct we're, we're, democracy we're, and we're so We're going on. through this angst-ridden tunnel at the moment. Brexit is only part of it. And I think we will come out... I'm an optimist. I think we will come out the other side in a much better place. But in order to come out the other side, I think we need to realize that actually democracy belongs to us, not to politicians. Public policymakers should be answerable to us in all sorts of ways. And many of the fallacies on which public policy administration is making you know, the infallibility idea that social scientists are infallible. If you're an economist, you know how to run an economy. If you're a criminologist, you know how to tackle crime. If you're a sociologist, you understand society. Actually, we're discovering that a lot of people in the social sciences and academia are talking out of their you know where. Sure. Okay, so we, we do you remember when... Do you remember when we do, absolutely we do. But do you remember when Tony Blair won the election in 1997? I do. And he gave that great, very moving speech. And he's, I'm so humbled by this, I'm honoured by this. I am your servant. Whiter than white. Yeah, and, and everyone was like, yeah. And it was just great. And, but... He was just doing that thing of saying what was required to be said at the time. And how many politicians are going to go, yeah, I believe in democracy. I believe in I'm honoring your thing. I'm yeah. your servant. I'm your representative. But they just don't. Yeah. I, I was very... So, I, was, I, I mean, where, where did, uh, you're an optimist. I, I'm not sure. I, I am an optimist. I mean, I, I think... Part I can't of the, quite see where... Normally I can see things clearly, but I can't quite see where this ends. Part of the problem is political parties. Um, politicians were able to... The cuckoo in the nest was able to parasite our democracy because of the party system. So yeah, I was puzzled as a candidate in Sedgefield as to why working class people in Sedgefield who had views far to the right of mine on crime, views far to the right on mine on what constituted a decent education for their kids, would go and vote for Tony Blair. Um, and they would do it because there was this sort of tribal loyalty yeah. um, in that part of the world to Labour. Direct democracy breaks down this system of party allegiance. Fifty percent of voters in Britain today are now floating voters. In the 1980s, it was fifty. 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 Five How do zero. you know that? There was a report out today, produced by experts. Really? Yeah. Fifty percent of Britons are now floating. So fifty percent of British voters there to be won. Fifty percent of British voters are not only there to be won. Fifty percent of British voters say that over the past ten years they voted for more than one party. Wow. So I think this is where. Is the Conservative Party going to survive? Is it Because, in my opinion, if there was an election now before Brexit Day on October the 31st and Boris stood for leaving the EU and all the things, he would not only win a majority, but he would win a majority that would last for 10, 15, 20 years, mm -hmm. you know, in favour of lower taxes, less state, mm -hmm. more individual responsibility, mm -hmm. leaving the European Union, a free trading hub, all those things. But... It's all Parliament won't let him do that. And if he doesn't, then, you know, if he doesn't leave properly, unless he wangles it somehow and spins it that we didn't leave and it was Parliament's fault, but vote for me and I'll sort it out mm -hmm. next time. You know, if he doesn't, then he loses, 
you know, a third of the vote to the Brexit party, a third of the Conservative voters to the Brexit party. Is the cons but, you know, we know how good the Conservative party is at remodelling itself, but we also know how infiltrated it is with people who aren't real Conservatives. Careerists. Careerists and Cameronites and, you know, the... A-listers. Yeah, and all the guys who've, you know, the Dominic Greaves and the, the woman in, um, in, in Devon, uh, in uh, Somerset who's gone over to the Lib Dems. I've forgotten her name. Um, but the... She's not even a household name in her own home. I wouldn't worry about it too much. Okay. Do you know the one with blonde hair? What's it? Sarah Wollaston. Thank you. People like that. Yeah. Um, where does, is the Conservative Party going to survive this? Well, let me answer it. Take a long-term view. Yeah. I'm very influenced by the views of, of Gramsci. And I've always thought that what we need is a reverse march through the institutions. Reverse Gramsci. About 20 years ago, I wrote a book inspired by Gramsci called Direct Democracy. And it was um, called Direct Democracy, Empowering People to Make Their Lives Better. Um, and I argued that what we needed to do was to make the institutions of the British state more accountable. Directly elected police and crime commissions, mm -hmm. for example. Um, the use of referendums. Um, you needed to democratise the judiciary, a subject I see as moving up the agenda. <laughs> and I, I argued that where all, all of this would go, I, I said that once you've got your open primaries and your power to recall MPs and your by-elections when you change parties and all the rest, all the stuff that's, that's, that's happening, you would end up with a situation where you basically have, once we've left the European Union and embraced direct democracy, a loose two-party system. And I argued that it wouldn't be Labour and Tory. Actually, you would be reversing the tragedy of the 1920s. You would be destroying forever the Socialist Party. There'd be, and there are half a million hardcore socialists, they're all members of the Labour Party, they're the Corbynista base in Labour, um, but electorally they're not enough to win. And once you ease the Labour Party back to where it was pre-1920, to the fringes, you basically ensure British politics, and I say British politics, is a return to a, a patriotic, free market, slightly patrician Tory party, yeah, and a sort of liberal municipal interventionist Lib Dem type party. And I think 20 years on, I think the plan is coming along rather nicely. Well, that, that could happen. Reverse Gramsci. Yeah, I, I, I sort of, I buy that narrative. I mean, you think the United Kingdom survives this then? Uh, yeah, for sure. Oh, okay. I, 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 think, I think that, you know, one of the reasons why the United Kingdom has been moving towards fragmentation is because, frankly, if you don't believe in an entity, people won't remain part of it. The centrifugal yeah. forces are directly linked to our membership of the EU. The EU actually promotes regions for a reason. It's an attempt to uh, okay, grind down yeah. the nation states between regional But I don't think ever, nobody considers themselves British. I consider myself English. You talk to a Scottish guy, he'll say I'm Scottish. Welsh, Welsh will say Welsh. But they shouldn't be in conflict. No, but you, they're, like, my goal is to take us back to the days. One of the questions I ask in my financial quiz, and, and the right answer is always my opinion, and, uh, but which is preferable, a United Kingdom or a confederation of smaller city-states along the lines of the Anglo-Saxon heptarchy? And if you want to get through to the next round, you have to answer the right answer, which is... The heptarchy. Yeah, of course. And, uh, to get through, I would have said that, but I didn't believe it. <laughs> and uh, eventually I'm going to stand for the independent nation of Kerno, which is the original, the, what Cornwall, Cornwall used to be called. Now, so, we need to slightly keep an eye on the time. Okay. You've been very generous with it. I just wanted to draw it to politics. If there was an election, 
I was going to say this week, this month, this year. Yeah. Who do you vote for? Well, I actually was going to be a candidate for the Brexit Party. I put oh, my name cool. forward as a candidate. And, actually, and, not cool. No, that would have been cool. Well, not cool anymore. I put my same na- name forward in the spring, and, and I wanted to be an MEP because I thought it would be a fun. It would only be six months. Not, I wouldn't get my balls broken too badly. Um, and, and they said, you're too much of a risk for us. We can't have a comedian, you know, at this point. And then when I was doing Edinburgh in August, they said, ah, well, we want you to be an MP. And, uh, and my, the next borough for me is Old Bexley and Sidcup, okay. which is Ted Heath's, Ted Heath's old around. one. But now it's Brokenshire. Do you know James Brokenshire? Yes. And he's the guy that shopped Scruton. He's a solicitor, Brokenshire. And he's the, the guy who shopped Roger Scruton. Complete remain. A favourite of Theresa May's. Absolutely. And Ex-Northern Ireland. He's everything you dislike. <laughs> but he but he shopped Roger Scruton on that New Statesman article without checking first whether the New Statesman article... Remember, he sacked Roger Scruton. Sounds like a minister. Yeah. And anyway, without first checking whether what the New Statesman reported Did about Roger Scruton... Did he phone up Roger Scruton. and say, Roger, is this true? <laughs> anyway, so he's, he's, he's sort of... and So basically, he was bowing to the pressure of the baying mob, which is exactly the kind of guy that we, you know, we resist. So I thought it was a good one, and it's like 60% leave. Uh, it's so, you know, I thought it was a winnable seat. So for all those reasons, I was quite interested in doing it. This is pre-Boris then? No, this was in August of okay. this year. Okay. And, um, and, but it was while the Edinburgh Festival was yeah. on. So I thought, yeah, I'll do it. And, and then, so I said yes to it. And then I couldn't believe it. Like all over my posters in Edinburgh, people were writing, UKIP, C-U-N-T, and all this scrawling on my posters. And I'm like, wow. Like just because it was announced that I was standing for the Brexit party, really horrible stuff. And... Anyway, so I was doing it, and then um, I had a problem at home to do with, it's a long story which I won't go into, so I had to stand down anyway in September. So the short answer is, um, I think it depends on when the election is and uh, what has happened in the interim. Mm -hmm. So I'm very much representative of that voter who's somewhere between voting for Boris and voting for the Brexit party. you know, I know you've got your checkered relationship with Nigel Farage, um, and I know a lot of... He's I mean, cross because I won, and he didn't. Well, w- w- let's not go there. <laughs> the guy, the, the smearing that that man has had to put up with over the years, and the misrepresentation... To be fair... And, and he, the strength and the commitment, and, you know... To be what, fair to him, I don't think we would have had the referendum without him. Of course we wouldn't. And, you know, what he's achieved is incredible, yeah. particularly as he's done it you know, purely on the back of, of his fantastic ability to speak in a way that yeah. people respond Credit to. where it's due. And, you know, and, and so for that regard, I think he's a hero. I really do. And, but mainly because the distortion of what he said and how it's fired back at him. Sure. And, you know, the violation you feel when that's done. And for him to have the strength of mind to ride over that is to his credit. So anyway, I think he'd be a wonderful prime minister. But I also think Boris could be a pretty good Prime Minister. So let's see. So the answer to that question is, after October the 31st, when is the election? What are the circumstances around that election? But if, if, if Boris has pandered and he's not stayed true to his word or whatever, then I'll go with, with um, probably go with Nigel, Brexit Party. If Boris but, does absolutely everything to secure Brexit, but a court issues a fatwa or whatever they do, yeah, um, and stops and, it. And, and, and stops it. And Boris says, right, okay, let, let's have an election now. Um, you force the British state to extend until the end of January. Let's have an election now. Would you, would you support him even 
even if we hadn't left? But possibly. Possibly. What I like about Brexit is these weird alliances have formed. And it's not just Brexit. These weird alliances are forming throughout society where, for example, um, you see it with this whole transgender thing where I'm going off topic, but it, I'll come back onto it in a second, where feminists, you know, old school feminists, Jermaine Greer, have said, no, these people aren't women. And so suddenly people like Jermaine Greer have been kind of ostracized mm. and they formed these weird alliances with, you know, free thinking, free speeches. People who, start to realize freedom of speech is actually quite important. Yeah. And so there's, you know, so you get, and, and often that's this, and you see it in Brexit, this weird alliance between, you know, the likes of Kate Hoey and old school Benite yeah. uh, leavers and Jacob Rees-Mogg, who were, you know, in the 70s and 80s were the polar opposite. And there's always been this sort of, admiration and and you so you get that within the brexit party and i don't know how long it lasts but you'll have somebody like claire fox yeah. in with you know somebody potentially like me who's you know we're, we're sort of opposite in some ways but we're alice and so there's a lot of people you know there's a lot of old school left-wingers benite left-wingers in in the brexit party but also you know libertarians and and people who are but maybe, know, it's good thing, maybe this whole process of extricating ourselves from this. well i quite like that if the brexit party can get over the smearing that it's inevitably going to have mean, to deal it's, with it's, it's going to have to deal with a lot of that um, yeah in a in a you know i remember i remember journalists who i assumed were if not friends towards me uh, certainly friendly towards me suddenly putting aside what they knew to be the truth to write the most vicious uh, and nasty things about my journalists party. seem to think it's fine yeah. That so many of them have got no un uh, integrity whatsoever, and you like you know I don't stand for that, and they're like yeah yeah, but I was writing the copy. No, that is essentially dishonest. It's on you. It's on you. That is intellectually yeah. dishonest. Yeah. But anyway, so you talked about these weird alliances, but so there's this weird alliance within the Brexit Party, and I prefer that alliance between the old school Benite left and the you know the libertarian yeah. right, if you like. I prefer that alliance to the alliance that's in the Conservative Party of your ministerial quango um, Mandarin class in the middle of the Conservative Party who really should be, you know, in the Social Democrat Party or something. Uh, and and the sort of, I prefer that alliance to the current alliance in the Conservative when, Party. When, when I was a Conservative MP, I used to look at a number of colleagues, not, a, not most, but a significant number. And I thought to myself, these are people who wanted a political career. But at the time that they went into politics in the early 20s, being a member of the Labour Party was an option. So they just joined the Tory party. And that, I think that's how you explain people like um, that ghastly man, Philip Hammond. Um, yeah. You know, but he's basically saying everyone's far right. I mean, it's a, far right is like, you know, Mussolini. And who in the Conservative Party is Mussolini? What, what's so extraordinary is another classic example of someone who leaves office and then opens up a bit. And in his case, he makes a series of comments that are so injudicious. You start to think, do we really trust this guy to write budgets and mm. <laughs> decide the tax rate? Which brings us neatly back on. I love the fact that he stripped all those guys of the whip. I just love it. I know. It's exactly what he should have done. I know. It's, it's, a, it's a small, but I think very important symbol in politics that you, know, um, you cannot be a candidate at the next election if you equivocate at all. You know, the June 2016 result has to be honoured in full. Um, it's hard to be an MP, though, if you're in a party. So let's say I, would, I was in... full stop. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But no, but if you're in a party, say I'm in the Brexit party, and we go, all this thing, and I've got joined the Brexit party because I want to do this, that, and the other, and I want to affect this and that change. And they go, we are standing for this. And you're like, as an MP, well, I don't actually agree with that. 
I mean, I accept that I have to stand for that if I'm in the Brexit party, and that's my my duty to the party. But it does create, and the and the you know the 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 commentators will always be grilling you and trying to force yeah, you out. I I, I I think I'm I'm familiar with this as much as anyone. Yeah. Um, I I I left all the parties I've ever been a member of because I can never find one that I completely agree with. But having said that, there are what you might call core issues. Yeah. And you know, when I was a conservative, there were core issues that made me conservative. When I was um, a UKIP MP, there were conservative uh, core UKIP issues that I adhered to. And when I could no longer adhere to those core issues, um, or what I felt to be the core issues in both parties, I left them. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, when Cameron was insufficiently committed to a referendum, um, despite promising one, he then started to row back from his position. Um, he had made it clear he was going to try and negotiate an exceptional relationship for Britain vis-à-vis -vis the rest of the EU. Yeah. He then shifted that to saying, well, we're just going to try for general EU reform. I realised, you know, um, we were being done up like a kipper, so I went off and joined the kippers. Um, he should have been more honest with himself, Cameron. Because I think if he'd looked at his heart as heart, despite the world, because he comes from a Remainer world, you know, that's Notting Hill set, they're all Remainers. But he hated dealing with the EU. Yeah. And I think instinctively, if he thought about it, he'd go, actually, do you know what? I think I don't like dealing with these people. I'd rather be out. I remember saying to one do of his Do you know what I mean? You've got I, the impression yeah, that he... I, I said to one of his sidekicks, why, why doesn't he come back, say, Brussels hasn't given us enough in the renegotiation, and lead the Leave campaign? I said there was a spare yeah. plinth in Trafalgar Square that will one day have his, his statue on it. Yeah, or he could have just said... This is what we're voting for. I think we should vote Remain because of blah, 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 blah. But you decide what you want, and I will administer whatever you decide. Then he didn't have to, he but didn't, do he do didn't you, have to leave. Do you know, when, when yeah. 25 years ago, I met Dan Hannan, and Dan persuaded me over lunch in Westminster to um, campaign to get Britain out of the EU. And do you know the single biggest thing that's helped us in this long march? Every single time when the opposing side could have stitched us up by compromising, they've been too boneheaded and stupid. If they had conceded something to either Blair at the Lisbon agenda or Cameron in his renegotiation, it would have pulled the rug from under us. If they had given Theresa May some ground, she would have got her ghastly withdrawal agreement through. And now, they've forced right, us into no right deal. Now, right now. If they, if they hadn't have said, if Merkel hadn't have said to Boris on the phone, hand us over Northern Ireland or else, um, you know, again and again and again, these people, you know, like all elites, like the Romanovs in Russia, like the Habsburgs um, at the end of the 19th century, their inability to compromise is what ultimately dooms them. And you know what? I'm not really sad about it. No, I, there was a time when I wanted compromise. I don't anymore. Yeah, I don't. Um, I I spent two years saying nice things about the other side, and I just feel they've behaved in such bad faith. Yeah. I, I I want I want this finished, and I want the winners to win and yeah. take it. Well, here's hoping. Now, Dominic, it's been wonderful having you on 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 the show. Yeah. Um, I. I noticed, and you're trying to wriggle out of it, but you did promise to oh, yeah, play your ukulele anthem. Can now, we, are we able to pause? Are we no, able? we'll edit it out. Just keep, ah, keep okay, the camera I'm, I just can, I need to just tune it up. But that can be part of the show. It's, it's, it's <laughs> okay, there's... Do you say when I'm cleaning windows? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how to play that. I'm not good enough on the ukulele. <laughs> Let me just very quickly tune this up. 
What shall I do then? I'll do... 17 do million maybe? efforts. Uh, I can't... Um, it's, I, I haven't got that in my head at the moment. I'll do... This is a... Okay. No swear words, because we're a family show. Okay. Um, if you come to a swear word, just go beep. Okay, so this is a song called... Uh, um, I'll do... I think I'll do... Okay, this is a song called Maybe. And it's about how there are two sides to every argument. They said he's a misogynist, a liar and a cheat, an alt-right sexual predator, uncontrolled and indiscreet, of colluding with the enemy and treason he's accused, of sexual misconduct, of distributing fake news, a narcissistic bullying national threat. Yet, maybe Donald Trump is not all bad. I know the very thought will make you mad. But employment is up, taxes are down, he's talking to North Korea. Didn't bomb Iran, doesn't like Sadiq Khan. Is there really all that to fear? Maybe Donald Trump is not all bad. Another verse. Can I give you one more verse? One more verse. They <laughs> said that the world over it is trusted and admired, truthful and impartial and at times even inspired. It's many finest moments oh so fondly we recall this cherished national treasure that is loved by one and all. It educated, it informed, it entertained all the same. Maybe we should rethink the BBC. Why do we need state-supplied TV? It's oh so pious and riddled with bias. Could its programs be any blander? Don't watch it, you say. You've still got to pay for this centrist propaganda. Why should the license fee be mandatory? <laughs> Dory, thank you so much for coming. It's thank been you, a great David. Pleasure. No, it's been fun. Buy my book. <laughs>